Your listenership is so important to us, and we hope you're enjoying the show. If you are able to leave a review on Apple Podcasts, it would be enormously helpful in allowing us to reach more people and help them get a good night's sleep. So does following us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and any other podcast player that you use. Thank you so much for your time and support. Good evening, and welcome to the Sleepy Bookshelf, where we put down our worries from the day and pick up a good book. I'm your host, Elizabeth, and I'm really glad you chose to be here tonight. This evening, we'll be returning to Anne of Green Gables. But before we do, let's give ourselves some time to recenter. Let's try some visual breathing. Imagine there's a little ball of pink light in your belly. Inhale and watch that light glow warmer and brighter, illuminating your whole torso. Now exhale and see it grow dimmer again. Each time you breathe in, feel that warmth and see how much of your body you can light up. Inhaling and exhaling. Lovely. Last time you were here, Anne was bringing the cows home from the pasture when Diana Barry came running towards her with news. Her great-aunt Josephine had invited them both to visit her in town to go to the exhibition there. To Anne's surprise, Marilla agreed to let her go, and the coming Tuesday morning, they set off in Mr. Barry's buggy. Miss Barry's house, Beechwood, was more luxurious than Anne could have imagined, and they had a splendid time in town. But by Friday, Anne had decided that she was, in fact, a country girl at heart. One evening, while Marilla and Anne were relaxing in the parlor, Marilla told Anne, that Miss Stacy was arranging a special class for students intent on taking the entrance exam to go to the Queen's Academy, and she wanted Anne to be in it. Anne was thrilled and began to set her sights on her new prospects, having never presumed that the Cuthberts could send her to Queen's. And that's where we pick back up tonight, with school beginning and the Queen's classes commencing. So just close your eyes and relax as I turn to the next pages of Anne of Green Gables. Chapter 30 
the Queen's class is organized continues. The Queen's class was organized in due time. Gilbert Ply, Anne Shirley, Ruby Gillis, Jane Andrews, Josie Pye, Charlie Sloan, and Moody Spurgeon McPherson joined it. Diana Barry did not, as her parents did not intend to send her to Queen's. This seemed nothing short of a calamity to Anne. Never since the night on which Minnie May had the croup had she and Diana been separated in anything. On the evening when the Queen's class first remained in school for the extra lessons and Anne saw Diana go slowly out with the others to walk home alone through the birch path and violet veil, it was all the former could do to keep her seat and refrain from rushing impulsively after her chum. A lump came into her throat, and she hastily retired behind the pages of her uplifted Latin grammar to hide the tears in her eyes. Not for worlds would Anne have had Gilbert Blythe or Josie Pye see those tears. But oh, Marilla, I felt really that I had tasted the bitterness of death, as Mr. Allen said in his sermon last Sunday, when I saw Diana go out alone, she said mournfully that night. I thought how splendid it would have been if Diana had only been going to study for the entrance too, but we can't have things perfect in this imperfect world, as Mrs. Lynde says. Mrs. Lynde isn't exactly a comforting person sometimes, but there's no doubt she says a great many very true things. And I think the Queen's class is going to be extremely interesting. Jane and Ruby are just going to study to be teachers, That is the height of their ambition. Ruby says she will only teach for two years after she gets through, and then she intends to be married. Jane says she will devote her whole life to teaching and never, never marry because you are paid a salary for teaching, but a husband won't pay you anything and growls if you ask for a share in the egg and butter money. I expect Jane speaks from mournful experience, for Mrs. Lynde says that her father is a perfect old crank and meaner than second skimmings. Josie Pye says she is not going to college for education's sake because she won't have to earn her own living. She says of course it is different with orphans who are living on charity. They have to hustle. Moody Spurgeon is going to be a minister. Mrs. Lynn says he couldn't be anything else with a name like that to live up to. I hope it isn't wicked of me, Marilla, but really, the thought of Moody Spurgeon being a minister makes me laugh. He's such a funny-looking boy with that big face and his little blue eyes 
and his ears sticking out like flaps. But perhaps he will be more intellectual looking when he grows up. Charlie Sloan says he is going to go into politics to be a member of parliament, but Mrs. Lynn says he'll never succeed at that because the Sloans are all honest people and it's only rascals that get on in politics nowadays. What is Gilbert Blythe going to be? queried Marilla, seeing that Anne was opening her Caesar. I don't happen to know what Gilbert Blythe's ambition in life is, if he has any, said Anne scornfully. There was an open rivalry between Gilbert and Anne now. Previously, the rivalry had been rather one-sided, but there was no longer any doubt that Gilbert was as determined to be first in class as Anne was. He was a foeman worthy of her steel. The other members of the class tacitly acknowledged their superiority and never dreamed of trying to compete with them. Since the day by the pond when she had refused to listen to his plea for forgiveness, Gilbert, save for the aforesaid determined rivalry, had evinced no recognition whatever of the existence of Anne Shirley. He talked and jested with the other girls, exchanged books and puzzles with them, discussed lessons and plans, sometimes walked home with one or the other of them from prayer meeting or debating club. But Anne Shirley he simply ignored, and Anne found that it is not pleasant to be ignored. It was in vain that she told herself with a toss of her head that she did not care. Deep down in her wayward little heart, she knew that she did care, and that if she had that chance of the lake of shining waters again, she would answer very differently. All at once, as it seemed, and to her secret dismay, she found that the old resentment she had cherished against him was gone, gone when she most needed its sustaining power. It was in vain that she recalled every incident and emotion of that memorable occasion and tried to feel the old satisfying anger. That day by the pond had witnessed its last spasmodic flicker. Anne realized that she had forgiven and forgotten without knowing it, but it was too late. And at least neither Gilbert nor anybody else, not even Diana, should ever suspect how sorry she was and how much she wished she hadn't been so proud and horrid. She determined to shroud her feelings in deepest oblivion, and it may be stated here and now that she did it so successfully that Gilbert, who possibly wasn't quite so indifferent as he seemed, could not console himself with any belief that Anne felt his retaliatory scorn. The only poor comfort he had 
was that she snubbed Charlie Sloan unmercifully, continually, and undeservedly. Otherwise, the winter passed away in a round of pleasant duties and studies. For Anne, the days slipped by like golden beads on the necklace of the year. She was happy, eager, interested. There were lessons to be learned and honor to be won, delightful books to be read, new pieces to be practiced for the Sunday school choir, pleasant Saturday afternoons at the manse with Mrs. Allen. And then, almost before Anne realized it, spring had come again to Green Gables and all the world was abloom once more. Studies palled just a wee bit then. The Queen's class left behind in school while the others scattered to green lanes and leafy woods and meadow byways, looked wistfully out of the windows and discovered that Latin verbs and French exercises had somehow lost the tang and zest they had possessed in the crisp winter months. Even Anne and Gilbert lagged and grew indifferent. Teacher and taught were alike glad when the term was ended and the vacation days stretched rosily before them. But you've done good work this past year, Miss Stacy told them on the last evening, and you deserve a good, jolly vacation. Have the best time you can in the out-of-door world and lay in a good stock of health and vitality and ambition to carry you through next year. It will be the tug of war, you know, the last year before the entrance. Are you going to be back next year, Miss Stacy? asked Josie Pye. Josie Pye never scrupled to ask questions. In this instance, the rest of the class felt grateful to her. None of them would have dared to ask it of Miss Stacy, but all wanted to, for there had been alarming rumors running at large through the school for some time that Miss Stacy was not coming back the next year that she had been offered a position in the grade school of her own home district and meant to accept. The Queen's class listened in breathless suspense for her answer. Yes, I think I will, said Miss Stacy. I thought of taking another school, but I have decided to come back to Avonlea. To tell the truth, I've grown so interested in my pupils here that I found I couldn't leave them, so I'll stay and see you through. Moody Spurgeon cheered. He had never been so carried away by his feelings before, and he blushed uncomfortably every time he thought about it for a week. Oh, I'm so glad, said Anne with shining eyes. Dear Stacy, 
It would be perfectly dreadful if you didn't come back. I don't believe I could have the heart to go on with my studies at all if another teacher came here. When Anne got home that night, she stacked all her textbooks away in an old trunk in the attic, locked it, and threw the key into the blanket box. I'm not even going to look at a school book in vacation, she told Marilla. I've studied as hard all the term as I possibly could, and I've pored over that geometry until I know every proposition in the first book by heart, even when the letters are changed. I just feel tired of everything sensible, and I'm going to let my imagination run riot for the summer. Oh, you needn't be alarmed, Marilla. I'll only let it run riot within reasonable limits. But I want to have a real good jolly time this summer, for maybe it's the last summer I'll be a little girl. Mrs. Lynn says that if I keep stretching out next year as I've done this year, I'll have to put on longer skirts. She says I'm all running to legs and eyes, and when I put on longer skirts, I shall feel that I have to live up to them and be very dignified won't even do to believe in fairies then, I'm afraid. So I'm going to believe in them with all my whole heart this summer. I think we're going to have a very nice vacation. Ruby Gillis is going to have a birthday party soon, and there's the Sunday school picnic, and the missionary concert next month, and Mr. Barry says that some evening he'll take Diana and me over to the White Sands Hotel and have dinner there. They have dinner there in the evening, you know. Jane Andrews was over once last summer, and she says it was a dazzling sight to see the electric lights and the flowers and all the lady guests in such beautiful dresses. Jane says it was her first glimpse into high life and she'll never forget it to her dying day. Mrs. Lynde came up next afternoon to find out why Marilla had not been at the aid meeting on Thursday. When Marilla was not at an aid meeting, people knew there was something wrong at Green Gables. Matthew had a bad spell with his heart Thursday, Marilla explained, and I didn't feel like leaving him. Oh yes, he's all right again now, but he has those spells more often than he used to, and I'm anxious about him. The doctor says he must be careful to avoid excitement, and that's easy enough for Matthew doesn't go about looking for excitement by any means, and never did. But he's not to do any very heavy work either, and you might as well tell Matthew not to breathe as not to work. Come and lay off your things, Rachel. You'll stay to tea. Well, seeing as you're asking, perhaps I might as well stay, said Mrs. Rachel, 
who had not the slightest intention of doing anything else. Mrs. Rachel and Marilla sat comfortably in the parlor while Anne got the tea and made hot biscuits that were light and white enough to defy even Mrs. Rachel's criticism. I must say, Anne has turned out a real smart girl, admitted Mrs. Rachel as Marilla accompanied her to the end of the lane at sunset. She must be a great help to you. She is, said Marilla, and she's real steady and reliable now. I used to be afraid she'd never get over her feather-brained ways, but she has, and I wouldn't be afraid to trust her in anything now. I never would have thought she'd have turned out so well that first day I was here three years ago said Mrs. Rachel. Lawful heart, shall I ever forget that tantrum of hers? When I went home that night, I said to Thomas, Mark my words, Thomas, Marilla Cuthbert will live to rue the step she's taken. But I was mistaken, and I'm real glad of it. I'm not one of those people, Marilla, as can never be brought to own up that they've made a mistake. No, that never was my way, thank goodness. I did make a mistake in judging Anne, but it wasn't any wonder, for an order or unexpected witch of a child there never was in this world, that's what. There was no ciphering her out by the rules that worked with other children. It's nothing short of wonderful how she's improved these three years, but especially in looks. She's gotten to be a real pretty girl, though I can't say I'm overly partial to that pale, big-eyed style myself. I like more snap and color like Diana Barry or Ruby Gillis. Ruby Gillis's looks are real showy. But somehow, I don't know how it is, when Anne and them are together, though she isn't half as handsome, she makes them look kind of common and overdone. Something like those white June lilies she calls Narcissus alongside the big red peonies. That's what. Chapter 31 Where the Brook and River Meet Anne had her good summer and enjoyed it wholeheartedly. She and Diana fairly lived outdoors, reveling in all the delights that Lover's Lane and the Dryad's Bubble and Willowmere and Victoria Island afforded. Marilla offered no objections to Anne's adventures. The Spencer Vale doctor, who had come the night Minnie May had the croup, met Anne at the house of a patient one afternoon early in vacation, looked her over sharply, screwed up his mouth, shook his head, and sent a message to Marilla Cuthbert by another person 
it was, Keep that red-headed girl of yours in the open air all summer and don't let her read books until she gets more spring into her step. This message frightened Marilla wholesomely. She read Anne's death warrant by consumption in it unless it was scrupulously obeyed. As a result, Anne had the golden summer of her life as far as freedom and frolic went. She walked, rode, buried, and dreamed to her heart's content, and when September came, she was bright-eyed and alert, with a step that would have satisfied the Spencervale doctor, and a heart full of ambition and zest once more. I just feel like studying with might and main, she declared as she brought her books down from the attic. Oh, you good old friends, I'm glad to see your honest faces once more. Yes, even you, geometry. I've had a perfectly beautiful summer, Marilla. And now I'm rejoicing as a strong man to run a race, as Mr. Allen said last Sunday. Doesn't Mr. Allen preach magnificent sermons? Mrs. Lynn says he is improving every day, and the first thing we know, some city church will gobble him up and then will be left and have to turn to and break in another green preacher. But I don't see the use of meeting trouble halfway. Do you, Marilla? I think it would be better just to enjoy Mr. Allen while we have him. If I were a man, I think I'd be a minister. They can have such an influence for good if their theology is sound and it must be thrilling to preach splendid sermons and stir your hearers' hearts. Why can't women be ministers, Marilla? I asked Mrs. Lynde that, and she was shocked and said it would be a scandalous thing. She said there might be female ministers in the States, and she believed there was, but thank goodness we hadn't got to that stage in Canada yet and she hoped we never would. But I don't see why. I think women would make splendid ministers. When there is a social to be got up, or a church tea, or anything else to raise money, the women have to turn to and do the work. I'm sure Mrs. Lynde can pray every bit as well as Superintendent Bell and I've no doubt she could preach, too, with a little practice. Yes, I believe she could, said Marilla dryly. She does plenty of unofficial preaching as it is. Nobody has much of a chance to go wrong in Avonlea with Rachel to oversee them. Marilla, said Anne in a burst of confidence, I want to tell you something and ask what you think about it. It has worried me terribly. I do really want to be good. And when I'm with you, 
or Mrs. Allen, or Miss Stacy. I want it more than ever, and I want to do just what would please you and what you would approve of. But mostly, when I'm with Mrs. Lynde, I feel desperately wicked, and as if I wanted to go and do the very things she tells me I oughtn't do. I feel irresistibly tempted to do it. Now, what do you think is the reason I feel like that? Do you think it's because I'm really bad? Marilla looked dubious for a moment. Then she laughed. If you are, I guess I am too, Anne, for Rachel often has that effect on me. I sometimes think she'd have more of an influence for good, as you say yourself, if she didn't keep nagging people to do right. There should have been a special commandment against nagging. But there, I shouldn't talk so. Rachel means well. There isn't a kinder soul in Avonlea, and she never shirks her share of work. I'm very glad you feel the same, said Anne decidedly. It's so encouraging. I shan't worry so much over that after this, but I dare say there'll be some other things to worry me. They keep coming up, new all the time, things to perplex you, you know? You settle one question, and then there's another right after. There are so many things to be thought over and decided when you're beginning to grow up. It keeps me busy all the time thinking them over and deciding what is right. It's a serious thing to grow up, isn't it, Marilla? But when I have such good friends as you and Matthew, and Mrs. Allen, and Miss Stacy. I ought to grow up successfully, and I'm sure it will be my own fault if I don't. I feel it's a great responsibility, because I have only the one chance. If I don't grow up right, I can't go back and begin over again. I've grown two inches this summer, Marilla, Mr. Gillis measured me at Ruby's party. So glad you made my new dresses longer. That dark green one is so pretty, and it was sweet of you to put on the flounce. Of course, I know it wasn't really necessary, but flounces are so stylish this fall, and Josie Pye has flounces on all her dresses. I know I'll be able to study better because of mine. I shall have such a comfortable feeling deep down in my mind about that flounce. It's worth something to have that, admitted Marilla. Miss Stacy came back to Avonlea School and found all her pupils eager for work once more, especially the Queen's class. For at the end of the coming year, dimly shadowing their pathway already, loomed that fateful thing known as the entrance, at the thought of which all felt their hearts sink into their very shoes. Suppose they did not pass, 
that thought was doomed to Horntown through the waking hours of that winter. Sunday afternoons inclusive to the almost entire exclusion of moral and theological problems. When Anne had bad dreams, she found herself staring miserably at pass lists of the entrance exams, where Gilbert Blythe's name was blazoned at the top and in which hers did not appear at all. But it was a jolly, busy, happy, swift-flying winter. Schoolwork was as interesting, class rivalry as absorbing as of yore. New worlds of thought, feeling, and ambition, fresh, fascinating fields of unexplored knowledge seemed to be opening out before Anne's eager eyes. Hills peeped over hill, and Alps on Alps arose. Much of this was due to Miss Stacy's tactful, careful, broad-minded guidance. She led her class to think and explore and discover for themselves and encouraged straying from the old beaten paths to a degree that quite shocked Mrs. Lynde and the school trustees, who viewed all innovations on established methods rather dubiously. Apart from her studies, Anne expanded socially, for Marilla, mindful of the Spencervale doctor's dictum, no longer vetoed occasional outings. The debating club flourished and gave several concerts. There were one or two parties almost verging on grown-up affairs. There were sleigh drives and skating frolics galore. Between times, Anne grew, shooting up so rapidly that Marilla was astonished one day when they were standing side by side to find the girl was taller than herself. Why, Anne, how you've grown, she said almost unbelievingly. A sigh followed on the words. Marilla felt a strange regret over Anne's inches. The child she had learned to love had vanished somehow, and here was this tall, serious-eyed girl of fifteen, with the thoughtful brows and the proudly poised little head in her place. Marilla loved the girl as much as she had loved the child, but she was conscious of a curious, sorrowful sense of loss. And that night, when Anne had gone to prayer meeting with Diana, Marilla sat alone in the wintry twilight and indulged in the weakness of a cry. Matthew, coming in with a lantern, caught her at it and gazed at her in such consternation that Marilla had to laugh through her tears. I was thinking about Anne 
she explained. She's got to be such a big girl, then she'll probably be away from us next winter. I'll miss her terribly. She'll be able to come home often, comforted Matthew, to whom Anne was as yet and always would be the eager little girl he had brought home from Bright River on that June evening four years before. The branch railroad will be built to Carmody by that time. It won't be the same thing as having her here all the time, sighed Marilla gloomily, determined to enjoy her luxury of grief uncomforted. But there, men can't understand these things. There were other changes in Anne, no less real than the physical change. For one thing, she became much quieter. Perhaps she thought all the more and dreamed as much as ever, but she certainly talked less. Marilla noticed and commented on this also. You don't chatter half as much as you used to, Anne, nor use half as many big words. What has come over you? Anne blushed and laughed a little as she dropped her book and looked dreamily out of the window where big, fat, red buds were bursting out on the creeper in response to the lure of spring sunshine. I don't know. I don't want to talk as much, she said, denting her chin thoughtfully with her forefinger. It's nicer to think, dear, pretty thoughts, and keep them in one's heart like treasures. I don't like to have them laughed at or wondered over. And somehow, I don't want to use big words anymore. It's almost a pity, isn't it? Now that I'm really growing big enough to say them if I did want to. It's fun to be almost grown up in some ways, but it's not the kind of fun I expected, Marilla. There's so much to learn and do and think that there isn't time for big words. Besides, Miss Stacy says the short ones are much stronger and better. She makes us write all our essays as simple as possible. It was hard at first. I was so used to crowding in all the fine big words I could think of and I thought of any number of them but I've got used to it now and I see it so much better what has become of your story club asked Marilla I haven't heard you speak of it for a long time the story club isn't in existence any longer We hadn't time for it, and anyhow, I think we had got tired of it, said Anne. It was silly to be writing about love and murder and elopements and mysteries. Miss Stacy sometimes has us write a story for a training in composition, but she won't let us write anything but what might happen in Avonlea in our own lives and she criticizes it very sharply 
and makes us criticize our own too. I never thought my compositions had so many faults until I began to look for them myself. I felt so ashamed I wanted to give up altogether. But Miss Stacy said I could learn to write well if I only trained myself to be my own severest critic. And so I am trying to. You've only two more months before the entrance, said Marilla. Do you think you'll be able to get through? Anne shivered. I don't know. Sometimes I think I'll be all right, and then I get horribly afraid. We've studied hard, and Miss Stacy has drilled us thoroughly, but we may not get through for all that. We've each got a stumbling block. Mine is geometry, of course, and Jane's is Latin, and Ruby and Charles's is algebra, and Josie is going to fail in English history. Miss Stacy is going to give us examinations in June, just as hard as we'll have at the entrance, and mark us just as strictly, so we'll have some idea. I wish it was all over, Marilla. It haunts me. Sometimes I wake up in the night and wonder what I'll do if I don't pass. Why, go to school next year and try again, said Marilla unconcernedly. Oh, I don't believe I'd have the heart for it, said Anne. It would be such a disgrace to fail, especially if guilt if the others passed. I get so nervous in an examination that I'm likely to make a mess of it. Wish I had nerves like Jane Andrews. Nothing rattles her. Anne sighed, dragging her eyes from the witcheries of the spring world, the beckoning day of breeze and blue, and the green things upspringing in the garden buried herself resolutely in her book. There would be other springs, but if she did not succeed in passing the entrance, Anne felt convinced that she would never recover sufficiently to enjoy them. Chapter 32 The Pass List is Out With the end of June, came the close of term and the close of Miss Stacy's rule in Avonlea School. Anne and Diana walked home that evening feeling very sober indeed. Red eyes and damp handkerchiefs bore convincing testimony to the fact that Miss Stacy's farewell words must have been quite as touching as Mr. Phillips's had been under similar circumstances three years before. Diana looked back at the schoolhouse from the foot of the spruce hill and sighed deeply. It does seem as if it were the end of everything, doesn't it? She said dismally. You oughtn't to feel half as badly as I do, said Anne hunting vainly for a dry spot on her handkerchief. You'll be back again next winter, 
But suppose I've left the dear old school forever, if I have good luck, that is. It won't be the same. Miss Stacy won't be there. Nor you, nor Jane, nor Ruby, probably, said Diana. I shall have to sit all alone, for I couldn't bear to have another deskmate after you. Oh, we have had jolly times, haven't we, Anne? It's dreadful to think they're all over. Two big tears rolled down by Diana's nose. If you would stop crying, I could, said Anne imploringly. Just as soon as I put away my hanky, I see you brimming up and that starts me off again. As Mrs. Lynn says, if you can't be cheerful, be as cheerful as you can. After all, I dare say I'll be back next year. This is one of those times I know I'm not going to pass. They're getting alarmingly frequent. Why? You came out splendidly in the exams Miss Stacy gave, said Diana. Yes, but those exams didn't make me nervous. When I think of the real thing, you can't imagine what a horrid, cold, fluttery feeling comes round my heart. And then my number is 13, and Josie Pye says it's so unlucky. I'm not superstitious, and I know it can make no difference. But still, I wish it wasn't 13. Do you wish I was going in with you? said Diana. Wouldn't we have had a perfectly elegant time? But I suppose you'll have to cram in the evenings. No, Miss Stacy has made us promise not to open a book at all, said Anne. She says it would only tire and confuse us, and we are to go out walking, not think about the exams at all, and go to bed early. It's good advice, but I expect it will be hard to follow. Good advice is apt to be, I think. Prissy Andrews told me that she sat up half the night every night of her entrance week and crammed for dear life and I had determined to sit up at least as long as she did. It was so kind of your Aunt Josephine to ask me to stay at Beechwood while I'm in town. You'll write to me while you're in, won't you? Diana asked. I'll write Tuesday night and tell you how the first day goes, promised Anne. I'll be haunting the post office Wednesday, bowed Diana. Anne went to town the following Monday, and on Wednesday, Diana haunted the post office as agreed and got her letter. Dearest Diana, wrote Anne, here it is, Tuesday night, and I'm writing this in the library at Beechwood. Last night I was horribly lonesome, all alone in my room and wished so much you were with me. I couldn't cram, because I'd promised Miss Stacy not to, but it was as hard to keep from opening my history as it used to be to keep from reading a story 
before my lessons were learned. This morning, Miss Stacy came for me and we went to the academy, calling for Jane and Ruby and Josie on our way. Ruby asked me to feel her hands and they were as cold as ice. Josie said I looked as if I hadn't slept a wink and she didn't believe I was strong enough to stand the grind of the teacher's course, even if I did get through. There are times and seasons, even yet, when I don't feel I've made any great headway in learning to like Josie Pye. When we reached the academy, there were scores of students there from all over the island, The first person we saw was Moody Spurgeon, sitting on the steps and muttering away to himself. Jane asked him what on earth he was doing, and he said he was repeating the multiplication table over and over to steady his nerves, and for pity's sake not to interrupt him, because if he stopped for a moment, he got frightened and forgot everything he ever knew, but the multiplication table kept all his facts firmly in their proper place. When we were assigned to our rooms, Miss Stacy had to leave us. Jane and I sat together, and Jane was so composed that I envied her. No need of the multiplication table for good, steady, sensible Jane. I wondered if I looked as I felt and if they could hear my heart thumping clear across the room. Then a man came in and began distributing the English examination sheets. My hands grew cold then, and my head fairly whirled around as I picked it up. Just one awful moment, Diana. I felt exactly as I did four years ago when I asked Marilla if I might stay at Green Gables, and then everything cleared up in my mind and my heart began beating again. I forgot to say that it had stopped altogether, but I knew I could do something with that paper anyhow. At noon, we went home for dinner and then back again for history in the afternoon. The history was a pretty hard paper, and I got dreadfully mixed up in the dates. Still, I think I did fairly well today. But oh, Diana, tomorrow the geometry exam comes, and when I think of it, it takes every bit of determination I possess to keep from opening my uselid. If I thought the multiplication table would help me any, I would recite it from now till tomorrow morning. I went down to see the other girls this evening. On my way, I met Moody Spurgeon, wandering distractedly around. He said he knew he had failed in history and he was born to be a disappointment to his parents and he was going home on the morning train, and it would be easier to be a carpenter than a minister anyhow. I cheered him up 
and persuaded him to stay to the end because it would be unfair to miss Stacy if he didn't. Sometimes I have wished I was born a boy, but when I see Moody Spurgeon, I'm always glad I'm a girl and not his sister. Ruby was in hysterics when I reached their boarding house. She had just discovered a fearful mistake she had made in her English paper. When she recovered, we went uptown and had ice cream. How I wished you had been with us. Oh, Diana, if only the geometry examination were over. But there, as Mrs. Lynde would say, the sun will go on rising and setting, whether I fail in geometry or not. That is true, but not especially comforting. I think I'd rather it didn't go on if I failed. Yours devotedly, Anne.